I don't know why they didn't ask me to sing with them. <laughs> if you will, get your Bibles and turn with you to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Now, my Bible tells me that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I want to share what I'm going to do the next, well, today and then two more weeks. Of course, we've got the, uh, on next week, the cantata, 16th cantata, so uh, that'll be the whole service on Sunday morning. But leading up to the uh, Christmas week, uh, we're going to look at some miracles that happened. There's three of them. Well, there's at least three. There's more than three, obviously. But we're going to look at the miracles that take, took place at this Christmas time in the life of this family. It's, it's an unusual story, but let me, let me share you about the book of Matthew for just a moment. If you study the book of Matthew, you'll find out that there are 88 miracles and parables in the book. But the thing that's most interesting about this book to me is that as you look at this book, you can open the book of Matthew from any place, and no matter where you turn in the book, it's going to be about Jesus. That's a good thing to do. It will either be a, the miracles of Jesus or it will be the works of Jesus. But there's going to be, you can open up any time, any place, and it's turn in this book and you'll find references to Jesus in it. These next few weeks will be about the miracles recorded in the first few chapters of the book of Matthew. The word miracle, I don't need to tell you, is thrown around a lot these days. Not too long ago, there was a movie called The Miracle on Ice. If you missed it or don't know anything about it, it's, the, it's a, a movie about the 1980 gold medal Olympics, Olympic team. And it's all about the story. About the, you know, the, if you remember back when that happened, how just excited the nation was that we'd, we had beat the Russians, what it amounted to. And so that's what it is. The miracle on ice, they called it. But now, one of my all-time favorite movies is called The Miracle on 34th Street. I just, I love that movie. I watch it every year. In fact, not... Too many years ago, I think the first year was here, one of our ladies for Christmas gave me the movie of Miracle on Ice. Uh, not Miracle on Ice. <laughs> Miracle on 34th Street. And so I just, I just like that movie. It's just an uplifting movie and so forth. And so I'm going to be watching this year. And no, you can't borrow my copy because you'll scratch it. But, uh, <laughs> but there's, a, there's also a children's miracle network. You can even put Miracle Whip on your sandwich. We have Miracle Grow for your plants. And if you're hard of hearing, you can even get a miracle ear. Miracles seem to be commonplace today. But as we study the miracles of Jesus for the next, like I say, a few Sundays, we need to have an understanding of what a miracle really is. And here's the I guess I call it the classic definition of a miracle. A miracle is an interruption of the laws of nature which can only be explained by divine intervention. That's a pretty good description. I like that. 
Because what God does is a miracle every time. And God did something in these few chapters and three of them that we're going to look at that's so unusual, it's unbelievable. There are some events that we call miraculous in our world that really may not be actual miracles if you look at them close. For instance, I'm sure you remember just not many years ago when an airplane landed on on the Hudson River in New York with all the 155 passengers surviving. It's in the water. It's floating, and these people are standing on the wings waiting to be rescued. A very unusual situation. The newspapers and radio called it the miracle on the Hudson. Passengers related that when the captain said, prepare for impact, most passengers started praying. Some say the reason all the passengers survived was due to the skill of the pilot, Sully Sullenberger. But maybe God did have his hands underneath that plane. We don't know. One of these days when we get to heaven, I guess we could ask him and find out about it. But the miracles of Jesus are unquestionably displays of God's power. There's no other way you can explain some things that's going to happen today as we read it. And then things that happen the next two Sundays also. Let's start our journey with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? The book, of gene- the, excuse me, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all these names because there's a whole bunch of them here. Most of them I could pronounce, couldn't pronounce if I wanted to, so we're going to just skip over that. Let's go down to verse 16, and we'll pick up the story here. I believe this is the most important verse in this whole passage. Look at verse 16 of chapter one, uh, Matthew chapter 1. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to, to, to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. And then it goes on, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Let's stop there for just a moment and have our prayer, then we'll move on. Dear God, we thank you for your word and what it means to us. And Lord, sometimes there's seems to be hitting, hidden scriptures that say something to us that we don't catch. And Lord, we just ask that you would open our minds and ears that we would be We would see this story the way that you've planned it and still are planning it today. Thank you, Lord, for your word that we can read on a weekly basis. But, Lord, most of all, thank you for Jesus Christ that died in our place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. You can be seated. I'm sorry. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, things began to happen. Remember that in every miracle, there's a parable. In every parable, there's a miracle. It doesn't matter where you're at. Look at any miracles and parables, and you'll see those two things. 
Every parable contains a miraculous divine, uh, divine insight. And there's a life-changing truth connected to every miracle. There are actually three miracles in this text. And in each one, we learn something that can change our lives, literally, if we'll pay attention to it. The miracle of Jesus' genealogy assures us that God is still in control. Now, I know in our world we question that sometimes. But this gives us satisfaction that what takes place in this miracle right here that we're going to look at today, because of what God has set in order, you don't have to worry about everything, anything. Regardless of what's happening in our world, regardless of how chaotic it may seem, regardless of how confused people may act and so forth, God is still in control. That's the, what we need to take from this passage today. Verse 17 says, From all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, that didn't just happen by coincidence. God designed that for a specific purpose. Bear with me just a moment and we'll get there. What is the significance of this list? And I, I didn't read the list of names, but go back and read them. I mean, it's just, it's not something you'd want to read for entertainment. It's just one name after another, and a bunch of them are hard to pronounce, but go back and read it sometime. What's the significance of this list that he's making out? Look, let's look at it from three different perspectives. First, what is the meaning of the 14 generations? We need to remember that, Ma that Matthew was a math geek. Now, we've got a couple of those in our crowd, so just, you know, I'm not going to say anything bad about them. But that's what he was. I mean, he was a former tax collector who was accustomed to writing down names and adding and subtracting and multiplying and all the other things, things that most of us are bored stiff with. He enjoyed doing it, as some others in our crowd. No names called. But anyway, so it just, that's who he was. He recognized that 14 is the product of two important numbers in Jewish thought. Seven is the number of perfection, according to the Jews. And two is the number for a witness. If you were to go to trial back at this day and age, you would have to have two witnesses with you at least to share your side of the story. If you didn't, it's no hope for you. And so that's, keep those two things in mind. You say, well, what's the importance of them? Well, watch and you'll see here in just a moment. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, he recognized 14 is the product of two important numbers in Jewish thought. Seven is the number of perfection. And two is the number for witnesses. You say, well, that's, what's that got to do with anything? Well, stay around. It has a lot to do with it. Testimony had to be established in the mouth of two or more witnesses. If you were called to trial, you would need to take at least two and hopefully more to share your side of the story of what took place, whether you be found guilty or not guilty. Matthew was only pointing out that this genealogy was a perfect testimony, that Jesus really was the Messiah. 
stay with me. Three is, a, is the divine number. Of these three sets of generations that we just read to you a couple times, it's almost like a thumbnail of divine history of Israel. The first 14 generations represents the time period of the patriarchs. The second set of generations represent the time period of the, uh, the sec- second set. Excuse me, I got messed up. The second set represents the time pe- period of the kings. And the third represents the time period after the Babylonian exile. So what? That's just a bunch of talk. Oh, no, every one of them's got something very important to teach us. We can look at this genealogy from another perspective. Let me ask you a question. If you didn't notice, we just read the genealogy of Joseph. Joseph wasn't even the father of Jesus. Why did he put that in there? Why did he show that genealogy? What was the importance of it? The genealogy traces the lineage through Mary. But why is this first? Even though Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus, he became the legal father of Jesus by adoption. And all legal rights ran through the father, not the mother. This is a legal registry if you really look at it. It qualifies each one that's been said something. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was earthly adopted child. He was an earthly adopted child. Jesus was an earthly adopted child. This legal genealogy connected Jesus to two of the greatest characters in the Old Testament. David, King David, and Abraham. The third interesting thing about this list of names is some of the people that are on it. Now, remember, we're talking about the genealogy of Joseph, the, you know, the guy that's going to marry the, the, the father of Jesus, earthly father of Jesus. That's an important position. Watch what happens here. In Matthew chapter 1, we're told that Rahab who once was a prostitute, is mentioned in this list of names that we did not read, but you can go back and read them. There's also a Jewish, uh, uh, there was also a lady that was not Jewish. She was a Moabite. Her name is Ruth, and she's on that list. How in the world did they get in this genealogy of Jesus? Well, We'll try to show you. There was also listed some pretty lousy kings who made the list also. Manasseh was one of the worst kings in Israel's history. In fact, the Bible says about him, he led Israel to sin and did more evil than any other king had ever done. The point is that God can use all kinds of people even the kind sitting right near this room, to accomplish his plans. That's what that whole genealogy is about. 
God wants to show us that no matter what your past is, no matter where you came from, no matter how many bad things you've done in your life, if you allow Him, God can turn those into something good. Isn't that neat? God doesn't have to have perfect people, folks. Guess what? I'm looking at a lot of imperfect people. In fact, I don't see a perfect one up here. No, not you either, Robert. So just don't shake your head. God can take no matter where you've been, who you are, what your genealogy is, and can make something great out of your life. That's the Christmas miracle. That God can take people like you and I that have flaws of every kind we can imagine and He can make us into something usable for His service. Let's go ahead and go a little farther. The point is that God can use all kinds of people. If He can redeem the life of a former hooker, an unclean Gentile, a lousy, kid, a lousy king, don't be surprised that he can take your life and make it into what it needs to be. That's the promise of Christmas right there. That Jesus Christ came to this earth to reach people like you and I that are not perfect in any stretch of the imagination. The main point of this, ge- of this genealogy is to look at those identical three sets of 14 generations. And be assured that God is totally in control of our history today also. It doesn't matter who sits in the White House. It doesn't matter who sits in the governor's office. It doesn't matter who sits in Congress and Senate and so forth. They think they run the country. No, they don't. God runs this country. God is still on the throne, folks. In fact, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We see from the beginning that God was planning to send His Son and had already determined when Jesus would come to this earth. I don't know why he chose the time he did. But one of these days we can ask him. But let me remind you of something else. That Jesus said, one of these days he's coming back to the earth. If that promise isn't kept, then we can take this Bible and throw it in the trash because it's useless. But folks, I believe in every word of it. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back one day, and I don't think it's going to be that soon, that short, uh, long of time. I believe it's going to happen before too long. This old world's in such of a mess; it has to almost. Most of us are so simple that history is what we did last week, and our future is what we're going to do tomorrow. We don't look into history and so forth. But we must remember that history really is His story. That's what it is. Just as God orchestrated the birth of Jesus to occur 
42 generations from Abraham, God is in charge of our world exactly like he wants it. You say, how can he possibly be pleased with what's going on in our nation right now? I didn't say he was pleased. I said he created it. I'm sure he's not pleased the way some of us are acting every day. But that's another story, story altogether. God is in charge of our world. Are you glad that God isn't restricted by time? Jesus' genealogy was a miracle from God. The second thing we see, the miracle of Jesus' incarnation reminds us that God can do the impossible. This miracle described in Matthew 1, verse 20. Let me just read it to you. Excuse me. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Is that a miracle or not? According to the laws of nature, human conception involves a man and a woman. That's how all of us came to be here. I hope anyway. People call human birth a miracle. But is it really? It can be explained by scientific observation. It can even be replicated today in the laboratory. But Jesus didn't come into the world the way we did. He came into the world with an impact, let's say. I don't know the best word to use. The laws of nature were interrupted. It became a miracle when Jesus was born because he was not born the normal way we are. He wasn't conceived by the action of a man and a woman. His life was the result of a word becoming flesh. The Word became flesh, the Bible tells us. That's Jesus who he's talking about. The same God who spoke over chaos and said, Let there be light, spoke over a young virgin named Mary and said, Let there be life. And there was life. Now, our Catholic friends have nurtured such of a deep love for the Virgin Mary that they honor her in a way that almost borders on worship. I'm not knocking our Catholic friends. Don't take that way. They have added two doctrines not found in the Bible. The first is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Most evangelical Christians assume that this Immaculate Conception refers to Jesus. But that's not the case. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is the belief that Mary was conceived and born... <clears throat> without any sin, and that she lived her life sinless. The other doctrine is that the perpetual virginity of Mary. It teaches that Mary was a virgin and always remained a virgin. That is, she never had any other children after Jesus. i got a problem with that. Because the Bible says that Jesus had brothers and sisters. So something's wrong with that interpretation right there. They explain that away by saying, well, those were just cousins. They weren't actual siblings. My Bible says it was brothers and sisters. 
Now, if you think I'm criticizing our Catholic friends, please don't. You missed the point. If indeed they have gone too far in honoring Mary, most evangelical Christians, which is what we call ourselves, are even more guilty because we have ignored her and not awarded her the respect and honor that she deserves. So if they've gone too far this way, we've gone too far the other way because Mary should be honored. She should be favored. She should be talked about, not to be worshipped. It was never intended to worship her. We shouldn't worship Mary, but we should love her and honor her as a woman who was full of grace and truth and blessed, the Bible says, among all women. Try to imagine a frightened teenager, which she was, a young teenager. Some people say she was as young as 12 or 13 years old. I don't know. I wasn't there. So I just, I'm just going to leave it there. But try to imagine a frightened teenage girl being visited by an angel telling her that she would give birth to the Savior that had been talked about for hundreds of years. I don't know about you, but if I was a woman, that'd freak me out real quick. Notice her objection to Gabriel. I read in Luke 1, 34 through 37. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. For nothing is impossible with God. Luke chapter 1, 34 through 37. Hang on to those words, nothing is impossible, because we're going to use them again here at the end of the message. Jesus' birth was totally unique. The words of John three sixteen that we all memorize says the only begotten Son is actually a translation of a word in Greek. It means one of a kind. Jesus was just not an extra birth. Jesus was a special birth. Jesus had a special mission. Jesus was the only man ever born who had an earthly mother but no earthly father. He had a heavenly father but no heavenly mother. He's the only baby who was older than his mother and at the same and the same age as his father. Seems strange, doesn't it? His conception was a miracle from God. Period. Number 3. The miracle of Jesus is a virgin birth proves that Jesus is the only acceptable payment for you and my sin. He's the only one that could have ever been. Not only was the birth of Jesus a biological miracle, it was also a prophetic miracle. Matthew quotes in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In fact, he quotes Isaiah 7, 14 in Matthew. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. For years, the doctrine of the virgin birth has been under attack from skeptics and liberals and theologians and so forth who claim it is an impossibility and not really necessary. 
they often point out that the Hebrew word Isaiah 14, uh, 7.14 is a word which also can mean young woman. So they use that to say, well, that, it doesn't say he did this, but hang with me. Young woman instead of a virgin. But think about it. Thousands and thousands of young Hebrew wives gave birth every year. So how could that be a sign? No, the only thing that would take, make the birth of Jesus stand out as a sign was the fact that he was born of a virgin. And he was. We're told in Romans 5 that we are all sinners because we're born into Adam's family. Adam is our spiritual father in the sense. We are sinners by nature and by choice. But Jesus is the only man who ever walked this planet who wasn't part of Adam's family. Flowing in his veins was not the blood of Adam, Joseph, or any other human father for that matter, flowing in his veins was the blood of God himself. Isn't that neat? That's why Jesus' blood was the only untainted blood that can wash away you and my sins. It had to be Jesus. Nobody else qualified. I've already said that we're a group of sinners. Every one of us. Nobody else qualified except one man. And he had to be born in an unusual way. And he had to be seen as unusual in the ways. Talk show host Larry King has asked hundreds of people thousands of questions over the years. He was once asked who he would like to interview if he could choose anybody from all of history. Here's what he replied. Jesus Christ. I would ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would divine, divine history for me. That's a pretty good call, Larry King. Our faith rises and falls on the virgin birth. It is the divinity of Christ through his virgin birth that qualifies him to pay the price for my sins and your sins. That's how important this Christmas story is. It's not something we just decorate a Christmas tree and put out front. We've got to see that what's behind the story. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. And men's pool, by the way. Men's. So the miracle on the virgin birth is not some trivial aspect of the birth of Jesus. We can just choose to accept it or disbelieve it. It doesn't matter. Belief in the virgin birth of Jesus is one of the fundamental doctrines of our faith as Christians. I would go so far to say that you really cannot be a born-again Christian if you don't believe that Jesus is born of a virgin. Now, that might be going pushing a little, but 
because we're not saved by believing that Jesus was a good man who left some good, wonderful teachings. We're saved by believing that Jesus was the perfect God-man who died on a cross for our sins. Let me close this out. Sometimes people ask, do you still believe in miracles? I don't just believe in them. I depend on them. Every time I get up in this pulpit, this to me is a sacred pulpit. Not because I stand here, but because of what it represents. And as a church, we should be a sacred church that God endues us with a faith that can fight anything. God's still showing up and interrupting the laws of nature and human nature and changing people and changing situations. It's a miracle to me that God can take an old sinful boy like myself. Didn't have a clue what the Bible said or anything else. And he can change my life in that much notice. These three miracles are more than just a historical glance back at the beginning of the earthly life of Jesus. Each of these miracles speaks to us at the point of need, our need. Do you think our world is spinning out of control? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's crazy what's going on. Relax. Trust God. He's still in control. It don't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter who sits in the Oval Office. It doesn't matter who sits in Texas governor's office. God is still in control regardless of what's going on. He's in control. Do you find yourself a sinner who can never be good enough to make God's standard of perfection? Go back and read that genealogy list. There was a former prostitute in there. There were some kings that were worse than worse. And God could still use them. You can't do anything so bad that God can't use you. It doesn't matter what it is. He's in total control. The good news is you don't have to be perfect. Just like the other people on that list. The good news, you don't have to. Jesus is the only one who was able to pay the price for our sins. And he's already paid your and my sin debt in advance. I don't have to worry about what happens to me after I die because I already know. Because Jesus Christ came into my life. I hope he's coming to yours. We have things in our world today that were seemingly impossible 100 years ago. A century, a century ago, you would, who would believe that you could sit in your house and watch an event that's happening right at this moment on the other side of the globe. But we can do that. We can watch that. We can see things happen by bouncing a signal off of a satellite way up in the sky. A signal. And who would have believed that we could hold a little device in our hands and use that little device and pull up 
details that I could never probably look up in Encyclopedia America in any way. It'd take too long. If you know anything about modern helicopters, you might recognize the name Igor Sikorsky. Did I say it right? I heard somebody. Oh, it was? All right. Now, I read this, so I'm relaying this. I don't know if this is an actual true statement. I think it is from what I read, but I don't, do not know. Sikorsky grew up in Russia in the, at the turn of the 20th century. He was told by his parents that man would never fly. It was impossible. But after the Wright brothers dis, disproved that theory, Sikorsky dreamed of an aircraft that could take off and land vertically. He built his first helicopter in 1909 at the age of 20. He eventually moved to America and established a helicopter factory. Igor Sikorsky, I still feel like I'm saying it wrong, but close enough, man, anyway. He died in 1972. But today, Sikorsky helicopters, I'm told, are the fastest, the finest helicopters in the world. They supply much of the helicopters for the U.S. Armed Forces, including Marine One, which shuffles the President of the United States around the nation and other places. When Sikorsky opened his first plant in America, he posted a sign at the factory opening, at the factory entrance as you walked in. Here's what it said. According to recognized aerial technical tests, it's impossible for a bumblebee to fly. Because of the shape and weight of its body, its relation to the wing area. The bumblebee doesn't know this, so he goes ahead and flies anyway. The word impossible means nothing. If I had the power to do it, I would, every person that walks out of this room in a few moments, I'd take that word impossible from you. Because, folks, with God, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible. Do you need a miracle today? There are five words that I believe can change your life. They are, with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing. God can accomplish anything He wants to. If He wanted to take this church and turn it upside down and come in from the bottom, we'd do it. God can do whatever He desires. With God, nothing's impossible. But if you want God to do the impossible in your life, you've got to be willing to surrender to His plan. When Gabriel announced to Mary that God wanted to use her to be the mother of the Savior, think about that, the mother of the Savior. Mary had a choice. She could, she could have said, no, nah, find another girl. But she made herself available to God. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may it be to me as you have said. So do you want a miracle? Do you want God to do the impossible in your life right now? Maybe there's something you're going through. Your family's falling apart a sickness, whatever it may be, do you want God to do it? Then that's where you need to go to. It wouldn't do you a good, bit of good to come to me. I can't do that. But the God of this book does and can. 
Remember this. When I merge my inability with my availability, then God's supernatural capability is released. Just say, Lord, may it be to me as you desire. When you fully surrender your life to Him, you can expect Him to do the impossible in your life. Let's stand together this morning. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this time you brought us together. Lord, for these words in your book that mean so much to us today that, Lord, we can see the impossible done in our lives. That we may see God do a work in each one of us. And, Lord, my prayer is today that you would do a work in this church. That, Lord, you would take this church and make it what you want it to be. Not what we desire, but, Lord, what you want. And, Lord, if that has to be taking us, some of us, out of the way, then, Lord, do it. But make this church what you want it to be. Lord, as we go into this holiday season, we know times get busy and everything's rushed and hurried and so forth. But let us pause and remember the day that Jesus is born and what significance it has to us today. Go with us as we have this verse of invitation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.